Exodus 20. It is good that, that we can gather as one family and have fun. Tonight's my chance. While I'm gone, you'll have the mic. <clears throat> you can lay it on the Southerners. And uh, Brother Sonny will be, I say Brother Sonny, Brother Don Moran will be taping it. Brother Sonny will be running off all the tapes. Perhaps somebody will come by and say, Brother Grant, you need to listen. They rarely laid it on you while you were gone. Of course, I won't listen. I wouldn't want to develop a complex, you know. <clears throat> well, people have more fun than anybody. Praise God. Praise God. Exodus 20, reading verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I am the Lord, uh, pardon me, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the generation unto the third and fourth, or upon the children, pardon me, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. All right, you may be seated. And I want to take one verse, and that's verse 3. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And I want to preach tonight on the subject, no other God. And we drop the S from gods, and we capitalize the G. No other God. For the benefit of those who may not know it, the United Pentecostal Church which we are affiliated, is a monotheistic church. And by that we mean we do not believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We strongly adhere to the doctrine of the Bible. And I believe it to be just that way, the doctrine of the Bible. We believe that there's one God. This is the reason why that we... We take and place banners on the wall. This year is special, a special time to emphasize the doctrine of uh, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the Redeemer. Praise God. There is none other. Acts 4 and 12. And then, of course, Luke one thirty one tells us, His name shall be called Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. We wear his name according to Galatians 3.27. Deuteronomy 32.3, speaking of the God of the Old Testament, the household of Israel was commanded that they should publish his name. Sister Diane Nelson has another one uh, almost completed, or perhaps is completed now, which we didn't have time to get up. But it's the whole gospel to the whole world. And this is the motto of the United Pentecostal Church. And then at Christmas time we go into a new theme. God became man. Which is a very, very beautiful concept. <clears throat> These are not just theories. 
They're not just doctrines that were taken from some religious uh, creed, but they are doctrines that come straight out of the Bible. Now, what I'd like to do in establishing a foundation here tonight, I'd like for you to turn with me to Genesis, the first chapter. <clears throat> and we want to talk about man was created, first of all, in the image of God. In Genesis 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. Now, the so-called doctrine of the Trinity that supposedly is taken from the Scripture finds its root starting in Genesis 1.26. And God said, let us, plural, make man in our image after our likeness. Now, you will also notice in verse 27 that God is spoken of, so God created man in His. Now you have the plural pro pronoun, us, in verse 26, and the singular pronoun, He, or His own image, His, in verse 27. So you got us and His. God created man in His own image. In the image of God created He, Him, Created he, him, male and female. Now, the question comes up concerning verse 26 and verse 27. And I understand uh, very little about the Hebrew language, but I did have a Hebrew scholar to check this out. I asked the Hebrew scholar concerning verse 26, because the word God and us are mentioned, and then, of course, God and his, he, is mentioned in verse 27. How can you draw a conclusion using this particular passage of Scripture only? And, of course, the, the man that I conferred with told me that it might be wise for me to check this out with other Hebrew scholars, of which I have not, but he only wanted to verify his particular position. And he said, without a question, you'll find that they will answer you like this. You see, the word God is a singular word unless it is followed by another name. And so in the Bible, there are compound names that mention, uh, that are, are made reference to. We sing a chorus around here, Jehovah Jireh, my provider. And uh, you will find that, that uh, this particular uh, term or this descriptive name explains the particular position of God. He is the healer. He is the provider, uh, so forth and so on. Jehovah Elohim, the self-existing one. But he said the way that you can determine whether the word God 
should be in the singular or plural of which it can be because the word God does not only relate to the God but to gods in general is if it is followed by a plural pronoun or plural verb. Now here in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. It appears then by verse 26 that it ought to be plural, that God is a plural term or plural word. We have other terms that are used in different languages that are uh, treated very similarly. In verse 27, God created man in his singular uh, own image. So there seems to be an apparent contradiction in the Scripture. Now, the best thing to do when you find an apparent contradiction, of which I do not believe the Bible contains any contradiction because the scripture tells us that the word of God is sure. Psalm 119, uh, 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Uh, all scripture is given under inspiration of God. In other words, God inspired it all. And uh, there cont it contains no contradiction. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth away, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. And the reason why it stands forever, because it cannot be proven wrong. That uh, it is factual. It's not a theory. It's the way it is, and, and it contains no contradictions. But where there seems to be an apparent contradiction, then what you must do in order to provide an answer for the contradiction is to seek the context of the Scripture as it is explained or found in other passages of Scripture. Now, a similar subject that we could, uh, or I say similar subject, another subject that we could we could search out would be the, that would have a similar situation would be uh, the subject of baptism. Now, we baptize exclusively in water by immersion in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereas the Trinitarians baptize using Matthew 28, 19 for a formula of baptism. Now, Matthew 28, 19 tells us that we should go into all the world and that we should make disciples of men. And the Scripture says then that we should baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's Matthew 28, 19. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, teach here means disciple all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, the reason why that I said this seems to be a contradiction is because that the apostles baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order for you to find out if the Scripture is contradicting itself, then you must seek evidences in other areas of the Bible to find out if there is indeed a contradiction. And if there is not a contradiction, then, then what is the Bible really saying here? Well, of course, in the area of baptism, please understand that it is a very controversial subject. Now, we baptize exclusively in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins 
The pouring of water and the sprinkling of water, we say, don't count. And the reason why we say that it doesn't count is because we have no evidence in the Scripture anywhere where anybody was ever baptized any other way but in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, then there, as we search the Scripture, then we must, there must be an answer to Matthew 28, 19. While I am not here to preach on the subject of baptism, the apparent answer is that if the apostles were indeed commanded to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we, with all the examples we have in the Scripture, we would need to have an example found in the Scripture where they actually baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. If they were commanded by Jesus to do it that way. And then, of course, if they did not baptize correctly, and baptism is an important uh, commandment, of which it, it certainly is, according to the Scripture, then we have to make up our mind, if they didn't baptize in, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, then they were in error by doing this. So, if it's important, then all the apostles, without exception, uh, followed uh, down the wrong road and did not uh, take the advice of Jesus. However, the Scripture tells us that that the very holy city, New Jerusalem, is built upon twelve foundations, each one bearing the name of the apostle of an apostle. So uh, Peter, who held the keys to the kingdom of God, when he preached in Acts two thirty eight, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Now this man was either right or he was wrong. Now it just might be that that day he didn't wash his ears and he didn't hear right. And so as a result, when he got up to preach, he couldn't remember what Jesus said, so he just preached on his own what he thought Jesus said. But you see, it doesn't really work that way because God honored his word. Not only did God honor his word, but he filled 3,000 souls that day with the Holy Ghost as the man began to unlock the door of salvation to the uh, people who were there or for the day of Pentecost. Now you can you can mark it down, friend. Peter did not make a mistake. If Peter had made a mistake, the Bible would have pointed out specifically his mistake, just like it points out the mistake of David and some of the other great men of the past. But it doesn't point it out. It doesn't even make a reference to it. In fact, it commends what he had done. So the conclusion is that that Matthew 28:19 is a valid scripture because all scriptures are valid. However, the interpretation placed on Matthew 28:19 must certainly be uh, different, uh, and the statement that Jesus made must mean something different from what people are making it mean today. That is, if it was not a formula for baptism. So the apparent answer then is that Matthew 28:19 is a valid scripture. And also Acts 2.38 is a valid scripture. Now the apostles followed Acts 2.38 throughout the uh, duration of uh, the book of Acts. And references are made in the epistles of Jesus named baptism. So uh, what, uh, what went wrong? Well, nothing went wrong. It's just that Matthew 28.19 was not intended to be a formula for baptism. If it had have been, then the apostles would have surely used it. And you notice what the scripture says, baptizing them in the name, singular. 
Now, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost are all prepositional phrases. Now, all of you have been to school enough to know that of is a preposition. Of the Father is a prepositional phrase that modifies name. Of the Son is a prepositional phrase that modifies name. And of the Holy Ghost is a prepositional phrase that modifies name. Now, you could, if you could diagram a sentence, you could find out that all three of these phrases modify the name singular, not names. Now, if the Scripture w- would have read, baptizing them in the names of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, then you could find out what the names were. And then you would have the names in which you are to be baptized. But it does not say names. It says name. Of the Father, the prepositional phrase that modifies name. Of the Son, of the Holy Ghost, all prepositional phrases that modify modify name. Then the name, singular, is what? It's got to be one name because it says names. So what is the name in which we should be baptized? Well, there is no other name, the Scripture says. And if there is no other name, then we must conclude that the name is Jesus. You see, when you put a man down in the water and you say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Ghost, and you bring him up out of the water and you don't call the name of the Father... While Father technically is a name, it's not a proper name. It is a descriptive name. And technically, uh, a Son is a name, but it's not a descriptive name. It's not a proper name, rather. It is only a descriptive name, but not a proper one. And then, of course, Holy Ghost technically is not a name. It is a descriptive name, but not a proper name is referring to a Holy Spirit or a Holy Ghost. Now, if you baptize someone in the name of the Father, then you have to call His name. Because if you put Him on the water and bring Him up, say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, but you don't call the name of the Father, you may have said you baptized in the name of the Father, but how can you when you never mentioned Him? See? Now, the reason why I'm calling your attention to this, because this does have some bearing, evidently, on, on the message. That's why I'm using this particular passage of Scripture. But you baptize him in the name of the Son, but you never call the name of the Son, then you haven't baptized. It's like a contract. You say, I purchased this, I purchased this house for my son in his name. But when you, when you, when you get the contract, it just says, in the name of my son then technically, who does the house belong to? Well, first place, that is just not vernacular that you would use on a contract. You want to be more specific. If you want to purchase a house for your son in his name, you put his name on the deed. And if you want to be baptized in the name of the Father, you put his name in that formula. If you want to baptize him in the name of the Son, you put his name in that formula. If you want to be baptized in the name of the Holy Ghost, you put his name in that formula. And if the Father 
has a different name from the Son, and the Son has a different name from the Holy Ghost, if you baptize them according to Matthew 28, 19, you've got to call three different, distinct, specific names to baptize them according to Matthew 28, 19. See? Now, <clears throat> let's go back to, to Genesis where we left off. Okay. Now, in this particular passage of Scripture, there must be... There must be an answer. The scripture does not contradict itself. So as a result, did God indeed create man? Or was this a collective thing that was done by more than one individual or person? Now, you don't have to go very far in the scripture to find out that God lays claim as the creator of mankind. Now, I will not call your attention to specific scriptures at this particular point, but we will get into those in just a moment. Now, what I'd like to do is first give you the explanation. We'll go about this a little bit in a backward fashion, as much of my preaching is anyway. But uh, to, to let you see uh, what I believe to start with, okay? In the book of Job, the 38th chapter, verse 7, In the book of Job, the 38th chapter, verse 7, there's a scripture given. But now before we read verse 7, I'd like to explain to you what is happening to Job. Job was a man who was a perfect man, the scripture says. Now, I suppose by perfect we mean that he was all right. Now, if this man was an all right man, which he was, perfect man, it's hard for me to think of anybody that's perfect. Now, I know that Jesus was perfect, but see, I wasn't around here when Jesus walked on the face of the earth. So I've never been associated with anybody that I'd consider a perfect man. Now, we have some mighty good men here, and men who I believe that keep their life under the blood. Now, really the, the situation that's found in the Scripture is that if you keep your life under the blood, keep your sins washed away by His blood, you are perfect in the sight of God. But you see, to us, perfect means never making a mistake ever. Well, Job was a perfect man. Now, the scripture tells us that a trial came to Job. He lost everything that he had. And then, of course, the devil came back to the Lord, and the devil informed the Lord that, uh, that if God would allow him to come and inflict, in, inflict sores into his body... Then, uh, then uh, Job would curse the Lord. Well, the devil uh, tempted God with this. God says, okay, well, we'll let you do this, and we'll see about it. So the devil brought all kinds of sores, boils upon his body. Now, Job got dis depressed, you know. He really did. He got, got down and out. Now, don't, don't point your finger at Job and say he shouldn't have done this, because I know some of you... They get depressed when you have a toothache, a headache. You know, these things happen to me. I, I haven't felt the best about my foot. Tell you the truth, there's just a lot of things I'd like to do, uh, and I can't do them. I found that uh, now it's hard for me to... I, I wanted to climb up in the tree stand, and I couldn't get up there. And I was thinking about all these men up in the tree stand, at bow hunting, you know, not hunting for bows, but hunting for deer. And I couldn't get up in the tree stand because of my ankle. I'm getting so clumsy... And, in fact, I have to have a stepladder to get up into Roy's blazer. 
And uh, <clears throat> so I, I'm just getting, you know, and, and uh, I catch myself quite often. I just, I just, uh, I wish I could do this. I wish, and I get kind of down in the dumps and grumpy about all of this. Now, Job's situation was a lot worse than that. So I'm not going to blame Job when I get grumpy over some of the things I get grumpy over. But nevertheless, when in, in his moments of despair, when he felt that, wow, God is just, you know, he, he didn't know. Well, he wasn't really questioning God by saying, hey, God, you're mean to me. He wasn't doing that. But he began to question a lot of things. And God came down and began to talk to him. And then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkened the counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up now thy loins like a man, and I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. In other words, the Lord was saying, Stand to attention like a soldier, Job. I want to ask you some questions. Where was thou when I, singular, laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. In other words, God is saying, I laid the foundation of the earth. I did it. Now, if you will notice throughout the book of Job, God declares that he did it, and he did it alone. See? Now, <clears throat> who have laid the measure thereof? If thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations thereof fastened? Or who laid the cornerstone thereof? In other words, he was telling him, said, look, do you know of anybody that, 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 that lived back there when I did all of this? In other words, keep your trust in me, Job. Job was, you see, what Job was doing, he, I'm not saying he was losing faith, but God came to him just in enough time to give him the proper encouragement. God's always right on time. And God just started reminding Job how big that he was. So big and powerful and strong. And then, of course, verse 7, When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, back when God was creating the heavens and the earth, evidently there was a host of, of, of angelic beings that were there. And so when God began to create the heavens and the earth, and when he made man, he said, let us make man in our image. I believe that God, even though he was sovereign in his creativity, even though God did not seek counsel with the angels, they were there and they were very supportive of what he was doing. And the vernacular that in which the scripture is written, God in his creativity begins to speak out to all of the angelic host who are watching. And he says, let us make man in our own image. Now, I don't know whether you believe it or not, but I believe the angels were made in the image of God. And I'll cover that in just a moment as to why I believe they were made in the image of God. All right, so then verse 27, so God created man in his image. Now the Bible could have said, so God created man in their image. See, but he didn't. He said in his image. At this time, 
He singles it down. Why? So that you and I will understand that God is one. Read the book of Isaiah. Oh, what a great book that explains the oneness of God. Over and over and over, God declares that He is one and there is no other. So God created man, singular, in His image and in His likeness. Now, you will notice, notice something here. When God recreates man, that is, when He saves a man, it is also explained in the Scripture what happens. Now, Jesus told to Nicodemus, He said, Ye must be born again. Now, we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. Now, when it says new creatures, now, Adam was not a born man. But he was made by the very handy hand of God. And I use the word hand here, and we'll be explaining this in, in, in a little bit later in this message. He was the handiwork of God. He, he was made by God. God made Adam out of the dust of the earth. Now, we are to be born again. Nicodemus said, how can I be born when I'm old? Can I go back to my mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, marvel not that I say unto thee, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, of course, he goes on to say, we must be born of the water and of the Spirit, or ye cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we become new creatures in Christ Jesus. That means a new creation. I can just see Brother Felix Crowder up here, up here singing, I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. And Brother Crowder, when he's up here, see Roy's playing the drums and Sister Grant's playing the organ and Sister Debbie or Sister Sue's playing over here and, and Sister Colleen's playing over here and... Brother John Gaminder, they're all playing, but Brother, Brother Crowder plays the pulpit. I mean, he really does. Shakes the water all out and everything. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. And, and he's got this. He pumps up and down like this. <clears throat> I thought it was part of the black culture. I asked him where he got that, and he said from Brother Inquist. So... Uh, <laughs> I'm sure it is. that's not what it is, but boy, it really gets it going up and down. And I'll tell you, you see, you can get blessings by watching people. Brother O'Neill said, don't be watching people worship. And I understand what he's saying. But I do get a blessing when I peep every now and then. <laughs> you know, and uh, <clears throat> what he was saying, don't be critical of the people around you that are not worshiping anything. Just, just get your eyes on the Lord and worship yourself. But uh, when God created man, what was happening? All the angels of heaven, they were jumping up down and leaping and shouting. Why? Because God and God alone is the creator. The angels could do it. They were not powerful enough. They were magnifying God who was powerful enough to speak the word and the world came into existence. Now notice what happens here. If you would choose to turn with me in your Bible, we can go to Luke the 15th chapter. Luke the 15th chapter, then when God begins to 
to, to make man. I thought I had Luke 15. I was in Matthew. But in Luke 15, the Bible explains the parable of the lost sheep. In Luke 15, 3, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he had found it, he left it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have lost my sheep, which, uh, for I have found, rather, my sheep which was lost. And I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over the ninety and nine just persons which hath need, uh, which need no repentance. So the Scripture is telling us that, you know, Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, Except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And repentance is the very first stage of being born again. You've got to die out to sin. And the Bible tells us when a man enters into the presence of God for that new birth experience, when he's pouring his heart out and he's dying, God is in the process of recreating mankind. And so as a result, the very same thing that happened in the echelons of the past in heaven when God made man out of the dust of the earth, when the angels were jumping up down and leaping and shouting and praising God, the same thing happens when a sinner repents in heaven. There is leaping and shouting and praising God. You know the reason why that we also leap and shout and praise God around here? You will find out as you read this scripture in Matthew 18, verse 13. The Bible says not only that the angels leap and shout and rejoice, but the Bible says when the shepherd finds them, he's also leaping and are rejoicing. This morning at the conclusion of my message, we had a young lady to come down to the altar and almost receive the Holy Ghost. Wasn't it great, Sherry? Praise God. Sherry Jones just almost received the Holy Ghost. And there were people here just... I went in the office and I was counseling with someone and all of a sudden there was a burst right out here. And people were just speaking in tongues and clapping their hands. And oh, hallelujah! Praise God! Praise God! And you could tell there was fervency in the atmosphere as they rejoiced. But I'll assure you one thing, Sherry... That somewhere on streets of gold, there were angels running down and praising God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why? Because God is recreating mankind. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. And I suppose it's all right. I say, I suppose it's all right for us to get excited here, because the Bible also tells us that the shepherd that finds, he's also rejoicing. Praise God. And who only knows but God himself maybe run off of the throne, the master steps and says, Oh, run with you. Praise God. Oh, shout with you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Well, glory! Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah.
Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Now Romans. The book of Romans, the fifth chapter. It's explained concerning Adam. The Bible says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Now, Adam, when God made Adam, he made him in the figure of him that was to come. Now, that's speaking of the second man, Adam, Jesus Christ. So I want you to turn back to John, the very first chapter, and the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now notice what the Scripture says. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of that light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, John, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word, making reference to verse 1, was made flesh and dwelt among us. He, Jesus, came unto his own, and his own received them not. All right, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now how did Jesus live before John? He lived before John, and it's explained in the very first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, Adam was made in the likeness of him that was to come. Now, sonship had its beginning as far as its reality in the womb of a woman that brought forth this son and placed him in Bethlehem stage, a manger. The Bible tells us in Galatians 4, verse 4, that the son was made of a woman. But the original concept was in the mind of God from before the foundations of the world. This is why the Bible says that he, speaking of Jesus, was slain from the foundation of the world. 
At the very beginning of time, God had the word or the logos. The Greek word for word is logos. In the beginning was the concept, the thought, the blueprint, the plan. In my office right now, we have a blueprint of the new church building that we plan to build out on Commercial Avenue or County Trunk T. If somebody says, let me see your building, I can't take them to County Trunk T and show them the building, but I can take them in my office and show them the plan. And so when God said, let's make man in our own likeness, because he was not yet flesh, and because the angels were made also in the likeness of the Son of God. And the reason why that I believe this, because there were angels that walked on the face of the earth, Brother O'Neill, that people didn't even know there were angels. And the Bible tells us many of us have entertained angels unawares. They look like us. They breathe like us. And when you say they breathe like us, that is why they're here. They appear in every form and fashion just like us. But yet they are angelic beings that have the ability to dissipate somehow or escape from our particular structure and go into the spirit world and we don't even know where they went. And so as a result, God knew His own fleshly form that was to come. And so when God made man... He said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Jesus Christ was that image that man was patterned from. And the angels of the past were also patterned from that. And so God is saying, we will make man in our image and in our likeness. We'll make man like you are made and like the Son of God will be made and placed in Bethlehem's manger. Praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. And so in the beginning was the plan. In the beginning was the logos. In the beginning was the blueprint. In the beginning was the pattern. In the beginning was the concept. And when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. Praise God. And so when He came forth, the Bible declares in Matthew 1, 23, His name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And when Jesus walked upon the face of the earth, did they recognize Him as being God? My friend, He did the works of God while He he was here. And the Bible says they picked up stones to kill Him. Why? He, being a man, maketh Himself God. No man, they said, can forgive sins but God alone. Jesus said, which is easier for me to say, Thy sins be forgiven or take up thy bed and walk. In other words, Jesus demonstrated His creativity in the life of a man when He said, Thy sins be forgiven. If He could create the world and the angels rejoice, He could forgive sins and have rejoicing in heaven again. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. So John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Bible says, after a while, that blueprint, that blueprint became more than just a blueprint in the mind of God. It became a reality, and it dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Praise God. 
And that's the reason why the Bible says all things were created by Him. Did Jesus pre-exist? My friend, He did pre-exist. But He did not pre-exist as a fleshly person like the Trinitarian formula would have you to believe. He pre-existed in the Logos. But the true identity of Jesus was the Spirit that breathed upon, void upon nothing. And out of His breath, friend, came a world that you and I live in. This is the reason why when Jesus was here, He says, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of Myself, but of My Father, the Spirit that sent Me. So while Jesus was here, He had a fleshly form. But the true identity inside of Jesus was God the Father. You see, God was a spirit. And the Bible says, No man hath seen God at any time. Verse 18 of John 1. So nobody had ever seen God at any time. And the only way that you could see Him is that He declared Himself right out of the bosom of the Father when He became a fleshly form and walked upon the face of the earth. Friend, He was not another God. And He was not one third of God. He was the mighty God dwelling among mankind. We shall call His name Jesus. The word Jesus simply means Jehovah, the God of the Old Testament, has become salvation. The God of the Old Testament had no fleshly form in which He could give His life for His own creation. And He had to make Himself a body and dwell in that body in order to become a Redeemer of all of the people that He had created on the face of the earth that sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Praise God. And I'm so glad that God Himself came to redeem me. Now, speaking of the angels that were there at creation, there were angels that were there before creation. Since the beginning, and I assume that's saying since the beginning of time. Now, the reason why I assume that, because, you see, we can't think back in our own mind or we can't rely since the beginning. In other words, somewhere prior to the beginning of time, iniquity was found in Satan. Now, I talked about hell this morning, and I talked about fallen angels and such. Well, Lucifer happened to be one of the fallen angels. Or I say one of the... He was the fallen angel, but when he fell, he took with him, we assume by the vernacular in the book of Revelation, he took with him a one-third of all the angels... And so when he was cast out of heaven, he took with him a third of all of the angels. Now, what does the devil think of God? In James, the second chapter, verse 19, the apostle James writes this general epistle, and this is what he said, Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils, now notice this plural, devils. Not just Lucifer, but all of those that came with it. See, they all have a knowledge. The devils believe also, or also believe, and what do they do? They tremble. 
I say they tremble. Well, the devil tries to get people to believe that there's more than one God. He doesn't believe it himself, but that's just the way the devil is. You see, he's a dirty, rotten character. He tries to impose certain things upon you, and he actually knows better himself. So the doctrine of the Trinity, and if you're here and you are of the Trinitarian persuasion, let me just shake the daylights out of you by making this statement. The doctrine of the Trinity is Satan's direct attack against the foundation of the New Testament church. And friend, the thief cometh not but to kill and steal and destroy. Now why do you say that? Turn with me to Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter. Deuteronomy, the 6th chapter. The greatest and the first commandment was given. And of course, this is also taken from Exodus 20. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel... The Lord, our God, is one Lord. Now notice what verse 5 says. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. Now that's a, that's a heap of loving, friend. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. In other words, get it in your heart. Thou shalt teach them diligently to thy children. Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house. Somebody asked me this question. They said, how come at Calvary Gospel Church you always preach about the oneness of God? Well, God told the Israelites, even when you're sitting around in your house, you're supposed to talk about this. And I don't see anything wrong with us preaching about it in church. Let me tell you something. God didn't just set up in heaven because he couldn't think of anything else to say. That he, through his egotism, began to command us to talk about him all the time. That's not why he did that. He knew that there would be a direct attack by Satan to undermine the very foundation of the New Testament church. And so as a result, this is what he says. We want to produce a group of Israelites that not only believe it, but they preach it and they talk about it. And I would say this, even in some Trinitarian circles where they are baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ, and I've heard that some Trinitarian circles are doing this, the greatest fallacy of all of that is the fact that their preachers are not preaching it. The commandment is to preach the gospel. And if Jesus is God manifested in the flesh, as the Bible says, and we are to declare Him, friend, in order to declare God and Jesus at the same time, you've got to talk about the oneness of God. You've got to preach it. There is no getting around it. You've just got to do that. And so God says, now I want you to, listen to what I want you to do. I want you to teach them diligently to thy children. 
Thou shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way. In other words, you got your child by the hand or your wife by the hand, and you're strolling down, you know, Romantic Avenue. And all of a sudden, you begin to talk about, oh, isn't God good? Aren't you glad that you know that there's only one God? Praise God. Isn't that great? And the brethren are out playing softball, and, and you know, they got a one-God team, and they talk about Jesus' name and one God, and there's only one. Praise God. And, and uh, that, that's what God wants us to do. Praise God. All right? And when thou liest down, oh, when you go to bed. Praise God. Tell your wife, hon, we've had a great day today with Jesus. Aren't you glad we know there's only one? Praise God. <clears throat> you must say, oh, how far-fetched, friend. The Israelites didn't consider that to be far-fetched. God commanded them, and they believed it that way. And when thou risest up, the first thing you do when you get up, you're supposed to talk about Jesus as one with God. Oh, there's one, 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 only one way to God. Where are you going? Breakfast table? One, 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 only one way to Why are you excited about it? Friend, whatever makes Jesus happy just tickles me to death. Oh, there's one, one, one. There's only one way to God. Praise God. Now, that's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. I said, that's what he's saying. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house. You go to a door. I was at somebody's door the other day, and I looked on the door, and it said, Jesus is Lord. Praise God. Saw a bumper sticker the other day. said, Jesus is Lord. Saw another one says, only one God. Brother Dib up in Stevens Point has a personalized. I say personalized. I guess it does identify him. But uh, he's got it on his license plate. He's got one God driving right down the road. One God. <laughs> That's something. Praise God. <clears throat> now you may say, "Well, that's Old Testament," but I would like to say this: When they came tempting Jesus, they said, "Tell us what is the first and the greatest commandment." And Jesus said, and you know what he used? He quoted Isaiah nine six. And the following verses. And you know what he not only quoted it, but he says, Now, all the law and the prophets hinge upon this commandment. And I personally believe that in Matthew 18, when Peter received the revelation of the mighty God in Christ, he was given the keys to the kingdom simply because he understood. And not only he understand, but he confessed that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And the Bible tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 20, we're founded upon the foundations of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now I'd like in closing to have you to turn with me if you would. To Revelation 22. Now you remember how the Bible starts out? The Bible starts out, In the beginning, God. 
Let's say the word God together. God. In the beginning, God. John starts his, uh, his gospel by explaining. That's what he's doing. He's explaining the beginning. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, he's speaking not of a plurality of God, but of the oneness of God. That God in the beginning was one. And that He created all things. Now that's how the Bible starts out. Now, you know how the Bible ends? Revelation 22. When God begins to speak of the new heaven and the new earth, when He speaks of eternal life, when He speaks of the river of life and, and so forth, the very last message of the Bible relative to the deity of God goes like this. Verse 12, And behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me, to give every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega. Now the Greek alphabet starts out with Alpha, the first word, the first letter, pardon me. And it ends with Omega, the last letter. In our English language, we could put it like this. I am A to Z. That's what he's saying. Now that simply means first and last. The God that was writing here through the Apostle John was saying this. Listen to me carefully. I am from Genesis to Revelation, the first to the last, from cover to cover. And I'm going to come quickly. Hello, Mokushandalama. Oh, glory. I feel the presence of the Lord. Hallelujah. You notice in verse 17 what the Bible says, And the Spirit and the Bride. Now the Bride is the church. And you know why the bride can say what the bride says here? Because the bride is in harmony with the bridegroom. And when he says, I come quickly, the bride rises up and says, Even so, come quickly! We're waiting! We're longing! Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Why? Because we wear His name. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. He's from Genesis to Revelation. He's from A to Z. 
He's Alpha. He's Omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the first and He's the last. And besides Him, there isn't another. And we are called according to His name, Brother O'Neill. Praise God. The Creator in the book of Genesis became the creature in the New Testament. Yet He who became the creature did not cease from being the Creator. The Father in the creation became the Son in the New Testament. But when He became the Son, He did not cease to be the Father of creation also. The Spirit became the flesh. But when He became flesh, He did not cease to be the Spirit that started everything. Hallelujah. The life giver became the life. But when He became the life, He did not cease to be the life giver. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah. The infinite God from the eons of the past became the finite that lived upon the face of the earth. And yet, when He became the finite, He did not cease from being the infinite power. He came forth from a woman's womb that He Himself had created with His own works and His own productivity. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God became man, yet when He became man, He did not cease to be God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, let me tell you something. I'm glad tonight that I know His name, and His name is Jesus. And not only do I know it, friend, it's sealed in my forehead and in my heart. Praise God. And He's coming back after His own people. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I want you to stand with me right now and lift your hands and thank God for the great revelation that shined upon your heart one day when you understood that Jesus was more than the second person of a trinity. You see, when you're baptized in Jesus' name, you're baptized under the Father. When you're baptized in Jesus' name, you're baptized under the Son. When you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, you're baptized. Or when you're baptized in Jesus' name, you're baptized under the Holy Ghost. Why? Because in Him, Paul says, Oh, the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells. Praise God. And He is the head of all power and principality, both in heaven and in earth. And the whole family of God that's in heaven and in earth is named after Him, Jesus. I preach to you Jesus Christ tonight. I say, I preach to you Jesus Christ tonight. I preach to you Jesus Christ tonight. And besides Him, there is no other God. I say besides Him, there is no other God. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Oh! Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Ha, ha, ha.
My friend, tonight, if you are one of the lost sheep, I can assure you, Jesus has found you. When He takes you close to Himself, and you begin to feel the warmth of the Spirit, you begin to cry out for mercy unto Him. Oh, they're shouting in heaven. Why? Because He's making you like He made the first Adam. Praise God. You're going to make heaven mighty happy tonight. And you're going to make Jesus mighty happy. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, it's a great gospel. It's a powerful gospel. And the name of Jesus Christ has the power tonight to save you. For there is salvation in none other name. For there is no other name under heaven. None other name under heaven. Given among men whereby we must be saved. On both sides of the pulpit there is a place for you to come and surrender your life to Jesus. Now Pastor Grant is not here just to be critical of other churches. It is documented in the library downtown if you'll take the time to read it. It was not until after the third century that this mighty name of Jesus' name, baptism, was dropped from the rank and file of the churches of the world. Satan had a definite plan to undermine the church and to eat away at the foundation. But the foundation is being reestablished today through constant faith that's built in the Master. Both sides of the pulpit, there's a place to come and kneel and pray. Let's sing the song, Sister Grant, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, there's just something about that name.